folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Craft Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. You know, I think there was honestly like two to three years of just sort of stubbornness with me feeling like this will work out eventually. Everyone's losing money, so I'm just one of them. George Thornton has seen a great many things in his career in craft beer. From humble beginnings, slinging beer kits to homebrewers at a San Diego homebrew store, to building a thriving, symbiotic brewery-homebrew hybrid. He won AHA Homebrew Shop of the Year for 2018, for fuck's sake. But George will explain how he sees rampant commercialism and growth for growth's sake as a primary reason for the eventual demise of homebrewing company. See, he opened the homebrew shop in 2012, expanded to a brewery a few years later, upsized the brewery a few years after that, and then closed them both in 2022. He'll share his nightmare landlord stories, his endless pivots and their endless capital requirements. But I think, most of all, he'll share a pointed insight into what an overcrowded market can do to the small guy. He's got opinions and insights from the West Coast that are relevant to the beer industry as far away as West Virginia. I was the most struck by George's attention to detail and almost overwhelming ability slash compulsion to pick apart the status quo, think around the problem, and improve incrementally where he could. This is an invaluable piece of the entrepreneur pie, but, like we continue to hear, wasn't enough to keep George and Homebrewing Company in business. So this is the story of George's dream and how the first phase of it ended on March 22nd, 2022. And we are lucky enough that he shared it with us. All right, George, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks most of all for taking the time from Spain. Is that where this is to have a conversation with us? Yeah, in Madrid. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. You've, You've got a unique and interesting story that I'm really excited to tell. But Let's start at the beginning. You know, it's always interesting for me to see, like, how did people get even into beer to begin with? With How did this start for you? Like, what was the what was the beginning of, I had a beer and this was amazing and it, it changed things for me? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the show. I've listened to a few episodes and I really need to go listen to the Alex Van Horn episode. Oh, yeah. He and I's paths crossed quite a bit. I, I didn't listen to that one because I kind of knew his story already, but I'm, I'm excited to really just to hear his voice again, so... That'll be good. In general, beer for me, for some reason, as a kid, you know, starting like around, you know, 12 or so, I have to warn you, I'm what they call a high context communicator, as in, I want you to have all the context, you know, <laughs> and then I'll get to the point. Well, but, I, uh, I feel like that this, this show always benefits more from the whole story, which is kind of what we're yeah. trying to find out. So um, I'd yeah. always rather have more of the story than less. So please uh, yeah. proceed. <laughs> Yeah, so so for whatever reason as a kid, I knew that I was going to I was going to smoke pot and I was going to drink beer. Like I just knew these things would be part of my life and I now I'm just drink beer. As a kid, I was just always interested in in those things and the culture of or movies like High Times and those sort of like Cheech and Chong. I was like so cool. <laughs> yeah. So probably not the best influences, but I was always just kind of I just always thought it was cool and funny. 
And part of that in, in terms of beer was like beer coasters. And even like my dad had like a, he had a Murphy's Irish stout shirt that I like stole from him. And like when I was like 14, I was like, it's so cool, you know? So I was always just kind of interested in almost like the branding and marketing and culture of beer. And, you know, when we were 16, we would ask our, our buddy's uncle to get us beer and he was a Coors Light guy. So, so we drank a lot of Coors Light. The, the big thing that changed it for beer for me was, you know, I actually kind of dropped out of normal high school and went to bad kid school for a while. And I got to finish the beer you were drinking. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing was like, I was a good student. I just hated high school. And I was like, I want to go to college. Let me finish this up. I'm done. And so they, they're like, you can go to the, like, you know, the learning center and there they give you a packet and they say, you know, if you do this, you'll get a C. If you read this book and write a report, you get a B. If you do this, you get an A. So I was like, cool. So I got A's in 11th grade, finished 11th grade in like three months. And then was working at McDonald's full time because I wanted to go with my U.S. history teacher did a trip to Europe every summer. And my parents were like, well, you can have a car or you can go on this trip. I was like, I'll go on this trip. <laughs> Uh, but they're like, we'll pay for like the base, but like anything you want, you got to earn yourself. So I got a full-time job at McDonald's working like six to two in the morning. I loved it. You know, working hard, saving money, went on this trip and that trip was like the big eye opener of like, okay, I'm 17 years old. I'm allowed to sit here in this pub or in this German beer hall or wherever and just drink beer, really good tasting beer that I haven't had before. Like you've been hiding this stuff from me my whole life. Like what, what's the deal? So when I came back to the States, it was just sort of like telling my friends, like, oh, you know, there's this stuff called bitter, and it's not really that bitter, and it's amazing. <laughs> you yeah. have 12 of them. You're not shit-faced yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you sit in the pub and you just ask for it nicely, they'll just give it to you, <laughs> you know? So that kind of got me hooked on just, like, trying new things. And my, my sister, by the time I was in college, you know, she was buying beer for me, and I was getting real picky. I'd go into the BevMo in front of her, like, before her. And come back out and be like, all right, this time I want to try the Red Seal from North Coast and get me that flying dog one. And eventually her boyfriend's like, there's this place called Ballast Point slash Homebrew Mart. They have craft beer, but they sell homebrew supplies too. They had a kegerator at their house. So they're like, we'll buy you the homebrew kit and all the ingredients if you keep the beer on the keg. <laughs> Fair try. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of my, my lead up. And probably the first time that I, you know, tinkered with the idea of owning a brewery because they would they were like, we want to own a pub and maybe you could be the brewer or that sort of thing. But that just sort of kind of like fizzled. I was focused on my education. I was history degree and then a master's in history and I wanted to be a professor, teach at like community college level. That was really my goal. But by the time I was like working on my master's degree, I was just homebrewing like a ton. You know, I was, te- I was do- doing like teaching assistant stuff like and, you know, making money that way. But then was picking up shifts at a homebrew store that was a pretty, not a really great homebrew store. It wasn't Homebrew Mart. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Homebrew Mart, I had, you know, they had gaps too. But, you know, at this pretty, like, they didn't really care about the homebrew side of it store. And uh, I was just, like, obsessed with running that store and was, like, trying to improve it and was, like, really took a lot of pride and not even ownership. But I just, I just wanted it to be a really great homebrew shop. And so once that, you know, was clear that it was going to close, I just kind of felt like, well, I got to own a homebrew store, but now I'm getting into other parts. But yes, the thing with beer was just, I just loved the styles and I loved learning about it. And, um, I still feel that way. Let's just jump right into it. Did you finish the master's degree? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, master's in us history. So if you want to talk about media portrayals of, of the occult in the United States, you know, we can, we can go into that. 
and and how that relates to beer. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can make it work. All the overlaps of uh, beer production, but no. So obviously, you're, you're working at this homebrew store, and this this is actually an interesting transition. So at some point, you were like, "These guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. I can totally beat no. this." How did you get to that point where you're just like, "I have the confidence to open up my own business." And, and do it better. You had to have thought you could at least do it as good or better, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was really like, because when that shop opened, I was like, ah, oh, cool. It's closer to my, it's in my neighborhood. Definitely. Like, you're never going to get me to say anything bad about home, homebrew mart, really anybody, honestly. But I always just felt like I didn't really belong at homebrew mart. Mm-hmm. And so when I had the opportunity to try another store that was close to me, I was like really excited. And I was just immediately disappointed. I was like, ah, oh, bummer. Like, they don't have this. They don't really care about that. It's kind of messy. But I kept going. And, and eventually when I was looking for work and Homebrew Mart wouldn't hire me, they said I was too scrawny. <laughs> you, you're too thin to be able to sell yeah, Homebrew yeah. supplies? They're like, can you even lift a 50-pound bag? I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I was like, yeah, my, my dad used to work me in the yard all the time. I know how to work, you know, whatever. And then uh, so I'm working there. And the point where I got the confidence was I was picking up shifts like here and there, but I saw the rest of the staff like didn't do anything, like nothing. A pallet came in, they just received, like it, it got inside the door and they were done. They sat back down on the computer, looked at snakes on Craigslist. <laughs> like literally that was the staff, like knew nothing about anything about homebrew. So eventually I was like, can I just have this guy's shifts or that girl's shifts? Like, and I, so eventually just kind of took everyone's shifts, like poached them all. But I was like, do you want someone who actually knows? how to homebrew to work at a homebrew store. And so then they let me do like more ordering and that sort of stuff. And I was organizing things and the owners were pretty absent. But the moment where I felt like I could do it was, you know, we have these monthly meetings with the owner. And I said, hey, can we just create a budget and you just tell me what I'm allowed to spend each month <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll order to that and I'll grow, I'll grow accordingly. Like I'll, I'll figure out, you know, I'll focus on what we need and I'll, and I'll start from there and I'll, I'll add as we go. And he goes, fuck you, George. This is a small business. There's no such thing as a budget. And I was like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. So the day they closed was actually the day me, me and my buddy were working there. Uh, we were pretty much running the place. And I was like, dude, are you, are you over this? He's like, yeah. So we're like, let's just quit. And they closed the next day because we were, we were running the shop. Yeah. They didn't have much of a choice at that point. He wasn't going to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I didn't really see that coming. So that was, again, kind of leads into the, where, where I was like, well, what am I going to do? Almost done with my master's. I'm seeing all my buddies who are finishing up their master's and they're all talking about how they can't find work anywhere. It's 2012. So it's like kind of in this, and like it's in the kind of throes of like the housing bubble. In the beginning like, of the, the end bubble. Of it, right. <laughs> Yeah, the beginning of the Bruce, exactly, right? Yeah. Like this wave's doing this and this other wave's kind of coming up. So I, I think, yeah, it's really like a lot of times I feel like I lucked out because the, the moment I decided to paddle into that wave, it was a good, healthy wave. Mm-hmm. And I was positioned. I was I was very eager and very enthusiastic at a time when the customer cared about that. And it showed. So were you a, obviously I'm asking to, to get a little self-actualization, but were you just an amazing brewer? You know, I was decent. I, like, I've always been a better teacher, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love educating. I love learning. I love reading about stuff. I love that feeling of, um, you know, taking stuff that I've really, like, poured into, like, as far as, you know, cracking open the books. And then, like, a customer would come in and they'd be really confused or they'd feel really intimidated about something. I'm like, okay, let me, expl- like, let me break this down. I can I can make you understand it. And seeing that, like, click and go, and having, like, oh, okay, that, okay, I get it now. And seeing, like, their beer improve was always, like, 
my main goal. I enjoyed that more than honestly homebrewing. And I still homebrew and I love homebrewing. I'm good at it. Like I know how to do it all. But the thing that makes me feel really good is is teaching. Once you decided that you were going to open your own place, San Diego can't be a cheap place to do that. How did you decide, hey, I'm going to go get access to some capital and we're going to find a place? Like, what'd you do? Well, we started the, our trajectory was really, we just started as a homebrew store. Like mm-hmm. my main focus was homebrew store. And, and because I thought like, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a good brewer. I know how to do the things. I know how to like keep beer clean. I know how to, all that stuff. But I feel like there's enough breweries around. You know, at this point, Bell's Point was doing a really good job at it. And Nail Smith still, you know, was doing, you know, and I just felt like, yeah, they don't need I don't need to be here making beer, but what this community needs is a homebrew store that makes people feel really good about themselves and doesn't make people feel like if you're in the club, you're in the club. And if you're not, then you can, you can pound sand kind of vibe. Was your tagline always from the beginning, save the world through homebrewing? Yeah. What did, what does that mean to you? What was the kind of reason for being that in the handbook, you know, that would always be like, the idea of saving the world through homebrew, the universe through homebrew, is like so ridiculous, right? Because it's it's just homebrew. And so it was this moment to say like, exactly, it's just homebrew. Like we're talking about hanging out with people and talking about their beer and drinking their beer, like in their spare time. They came in here to talk about their hobby. It's just homebrew. But I care about this so much and it means so much to me and I enjoy this so much that I want to keep doing this for the rest of my life. So we have to be good at it. And we have to give a fuck. And we have to keep things clean. They have to be organized. They have to be in stock. They have to be where they need to be. They need, you know, like all the things need to be set. The mill gap is going to be like all these things are important. So we are going to save the universe because we're going to give people a good experience. We're going to treat them really well. And they're going to feel better when they left than when they came in. So that's how we're saving the universe. One person at a time, making people feel good. That was the idea of the whole concept of anti old boys club. It's saving the universe through homebrew. It's anti Simpsons comic book guy like these were all the references like literally in the handbook like page one you know this is what we're about so that's that's what that meant and you guys had a slightly different name then wasn't it like yeah it was the home brewer and then and then very cleverly home brewing co once we added on the brewery i don't want to overly foreshadow what's coming in our story later but clearly there were some issues with the landlord in the end so i'd like to hear a little bit in the beginning about how those negotiations went the lease that you signed And obviously, from an educational standpoint, going back, what would you have done differently? Well, I'll kind of fold in some of the other part of the last question I didn't answer. Basically, I I came up with a business plan, went to my parents and said, I need $10,000. That'll get me three months of like overhead and supplies. And I think by the third month, I'll I'll have enough money to like growing the business and, and have the business pay itself off or pay for itself. And when I went looking for spaces, I didn't know anything. You know, it was really just like, I want to be in this neighborhood in North Park in San Diego. It's where I live. El Cajon Boulevard is a traditionally very neglected part of the city and of the neighborhood. I'd like to be there because it'll be cheaper. And I noticed literally, you know, there was a coffee shop coming soon next door that was like a hipster, cool looking coffee shop. I was like, and there was a space available next door. I was like, that's the spot. I want to go there. And Tiger Tiger, which was the Blind Lady Yale House and then Tiger Tiger, Panama 66, Lee Chase and Jeff Mach and were co-in on that. They were a block away and they were like the coolest beer bar. They opened up six months before we we opened. I've been there. I like that. And that was like the cool new spot. So I was like, okay, a block away from Tiger Tiger. My landlord, I got kind of lucky because he was a guy who one of his best friends was a home brewer and was into beer. And I think he just wanted to be the landlord of a brewery. And 
when I come on with this homebrew idea to him, he's kind of like, well, you should really just build a brewery. Hmm. I'm like, nah, I'm not, not going to do that. They gave me a pretty decent deal. But to get to the point, I didn't know what I should be asking for. So I didn't know about like, hey, can you fix this thing for me and maybe charge a little bit more on the rent? Or, you know, I didn't know about any of these. I can't even remember the words for these terms anymore. Like TIs, were they tenant improvements? TIs, yes. Tenant improvements, exactly. I didn't know to ask for those things and I didn't know to ask for like options and like to negotiate my all that stuff. I kind of lucked out with this guy in particular because he had a sort of soft spot. I'm sure he thought I would just be out of there in six months, but that at least I would probably paint the walls or something in the meantime. Right. Improve it somewhat. Yeah. Within a year or so, I went back and I said, okay, this is going well. I want to renegotiate. I had kind of learned and got some advice on how to like negotiate the increases and put in the five-year options and extend it out and that sort of stuff. But in the end, he he passed away at the end of 2020. And the partners in the business were not interested at all in, in management. He was the management part of it. They were the you know an architect and a lawyer or something like that. And so they just weren't interested. And so they brought in like a family friend to kind of manage that side of the portfolio. I think she meant well but she was also very confused about a lot of things. I kept feeling like she thought like I was bluffing about things. And I'm like, no, I'm just actually being honest with you. Like I'm actually just talking to you like a human because she would just kind of like these deals would sort of come up and then they would like fall apart and be like, why did you, oh, well, I know you're trying to like, no, I'm not trying to, I'm really just trying to run my business here. But yeah. in the end, th- she had no control to even be kind if she wanted to be kind. And so uh, that combined with, with other things that we can talk about later just kind of made the landlord thing hard. But in the beginning I got I got really lucky and I didn't I didn't know that I should at least be like reaching out to friends who maybe knew someone who was working on that that side of the world to give me tips and at least kind of know or at least like it behind the scenes review things and give me the words so that I can still be the face of the negotiation. But you know, that, I didn't learn that until later on. Definitely a, a lesson too. It's hard because you're talking to a guy who's nice, just like, oh, cool, everything's working out. But I remember later on yeah. in my lease signing career that I had that conversation with people where I was like, yeah, I know that you're cool but I don't know who's going to be in that role in 10 years. And so I'm sorry, but I kind of got to protect myself as if the next guy's a complete asshole because he might be. Like, I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) they probably are. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately... Anytime anything goes into a, a trust... Yeah, like that was, and that's what happened. Like it all went into a trust, and then, and now it's in a trust. The only thing people care about is zeros, right? Right, and well, that's more the, whole, the whole point. They're trying to get value. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so I would think the other piece that would be kind of interesting to deal with is you were working at the homebrew store. You had the vendor relations. Obviously, you knew who people you were ordering mm-hmm. from. But once yeah. you decided to open your own place, there had to be. I don't know, minimums, credit, like how, how did you get yeah. those things set up and were there challenges there? Yeah, it took some time. I did know, I did have those connections so that that helped because I'd already been placing these orders and calling these people on the phone. It was a mix, you know, a lot of minimum orders, right? So like LD Carlson made me, it was like $4,000. I'm like, oh shoot, that was like kind of like my whole my whole budget. Yeah, <laughs> you know, 40% like of the money you borrowed. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, okay, I was really hoping to start with like, you know, 2,500 bucks in the store, you know? You know, it took some time, like White Labs took forever to give me credit until eventually I was like, dude, it's been eight years. Really? Like, can I get like 30-day terms, please? You know, pretty much everyone out the gates, um, after three months or so, they're like, hey, if, you know, you're going to put a credit card down, but you're going to get three months if you're going to pay up front and then we'll give you 30. So I kind of lucked out in that way. And then we spent a lot of the, last few years how about 60 or 90 you know mm-hmm. I, th- I think by that point that wasn't really an option and and i never really pushed the matter that hard but we we kind of lucked out with 
already having those relationships, already knowing who to order from. So I already knew who like the big vendors were and, and kind of what they all supplied and how to kind of the strong points and the weak points of each vendor I already was familiar with. And so you kind of knew in the beginning what to pick. Were there any vendors that you wanted to work with that you couldn't? Or that just like wouldn't yeah. deal with startup homebrew guy? Yeah, actually, and it wasn't really because it was a startup, but BSG at first had an old policy. They wouldn't open up a new account if an existing account was within like, I forget, like a five mile radius, you know, they didn't want poaching. That took some time. I had to write the president very often Hmm. and kind of broke him down. And then CBC was being hosted in San Diego around the time when we were already open. I I was like, can you just come and see my shop? And so they came in and like, we talked about it. And and I I really had to fight for that. I had to pull up like the, because we were, we were within five miles of home brew mark. So I had to pull up like, well, here's here's the zip code demographics. Like there's this many people between me and Home Brewmart. And then there's like this many people like on the other side of me who would like to come here and who I'm like on the grid with. So that was just kind of a, a thing that I had to sort of like work through. But eventually it worked and they carried the grains that I really wanted to carry. So that was like, you know, I wanted Wireman and Golden Naked Oats and like a lot of those those brands were only carried by them. So so I had to kind of start without those things and kind of and push and be like, look, this is part of my business model is to offer things that Homebrew Mart's not even offering. Mm-hmm. They've been around for 20 years. They don't even have these things. And I want to sell these things. So let me do it. That was about all, all of it. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the growth and like opening day and all that kind of stuff. But first, let's take a quick break. Mommy needs some new shoes. So we'll be right back in a second. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You got a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time, web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. So thanks for sticking with us. For me, it's 5.30 in the morning. So this is the earliest interview I've ever done. And I appreciate you making me that challenge for me. So it's something different and interesting. I'm uh, glad to glad to be here. 
Yeah. I'm glad to push you, you know. <laughs> appreciate that. So talk to me about like opening day. Like did you get was everything ready? Was it was it like kinda, you know, turning looking back, or did it end up being kinda half assed, but you got it done? Was there a line out the door? What was it like? You know, I opening day. So we're still talking, you know, we're just a homebrew store at this point. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think opening day was just one day I was like we had the Instagram account and I had poached all the the newsletter signups from the previous store. I was like, they're closed, they're not doing anything with it. Most of these people signed up when I was standing in front of them, so I'm yeah. gonna take them. So I emailed them all like, "Hey, you know, this is happening. You can. This is the one email you're gonna get, but please join my other mailing list." And so I had that, and then Instagram. I was just kind of Facebook, kind of building people up, and eventually it was just like, "Well, I have enough stuff in here now, so you can come in." And uh, yeah, it was a slow build. You know, I had a few people kind of here and there, and was really just trying to hit the homebrew clubs so just going to those the you know cloth meetings and society of barley engineer meetings mash heads and going to all of them and just saying please please come in and see what we're doing so it honestly like that first month was pretty just kind of slow mm-hmm. and just slowly building those relationships people would come in and we would just chat with them as much as possible and you know people want to you got to prove yourself to them they're like okay which grains do you have which hops are and so there was there's that challenge of having enough things to look like we were legitimate but also knowing that I've already spent all the money I can until you give me more. Like, this is it, you know. By the second month, we were, I knew the numbers from the previous store. So, you know, they were selling like $10,000 a month in retail supplies. So I was like, if we get to $10,000, we're good. You know, rent will be like 18% of that. And, you know, I'm just paying myself. The goal was to like give myself a job that like I worked 50 to 60 hours a week. And one day I die, but like I got to live and, you know, get by. That was the budget. That was the dream, you know. But by the third month, we were, you know, doubling that. And I was like, oh, okay, this is actually, there's actually more money in this. And then by the end of that year, we were quadruple to five times what our, what our target was. So what do you attribute that to? So, were you doing something so dramatically different than the other store? Were you in a better location? Or was, this is 2012, right? 2012, yeah. So part of it's just that wave. Like homebrew was really at its peak. People were still actively trying to support local and not just saying it you know they like actually went into the homebrew store and we were really really nice and we put a lot of attention on treating everybody that walked through the door like family and that was actually a novelty in the three or four homebrew stores that were around the the county i think that might be Um, a novelty in retail businesses in general um yeah yeah, you know it's a crazy (laughs) concept right you know and be nice to people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've got lots to say about that. You know, it's like some people make it sound like it's so hard, but it's like, actually, it's the easiest way. Yeah. It's just hard for certain drop, people. <laughs> if you're nice to people, they tend to drop their guard and not so you can take advantage of them, but like, yeah, they'll, it'll just be so much easier to work with. I knew what the other stores had and I knew what online stores had and what they didn't. I knew what, as a home brewer, like I was reading as much content as I could and looking always for the new cool thing for myself. So I knew what I wanted. And that was really the focus. It was just like, I'm gonna build the coolest homebrew store I've ever been to. And Homebrew Mart isn't my competition. I'm looking at Northern Brewer and More Beer. Like I'm looking at the big ones, I wanna beat them. And I think for so long people got used to kind of like what the local small home, like the local homebrew shop was like, so they didn't take too much to be a little different than them. It's like you just dust and you, you say hello when people walk in and you keep it stocked and organized. So but, you think that you were taking business more from the online players than you were from Homebrew Mart? 
that was like my goal. Yeah, and that's even what I told BSG. I was like, look, I'm really just, there's a lot of people who shop online and I'm just trying to make sure that they don't have to, that they have options. And that was always like, that was my focus was to, even with our pricing, was to keep ourselves online plus shipping. We're going to be about that if you come in here and you, and you buy a recipe. So that really was our focus was was looking at that. So this is one of those, and I, I alluded to this in the book a little bit, and I'm curious to hear from your perspective. So within what, six months, you were doing 5x what you said was your minimum, essentially? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it sounds great on paper, but that means that you had to have five times the inventory effectively. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, you, you were selling things for more than you made, but I, I would mm-hmm. think it would have been hard to keep that much inventory that quickly. Did you have to have more capital put in that early, or were you able to just kind of not pay yourself enough that you could reinvest all of it? Yeah, the plan was I wasn't really paying myself. Probably paying myself like when I felt like it, like a grand a month, kind of. Mm-hmm. And it was really more enough to my partner at the time was kind of covering stuff at home. And it was enough for like if I'm going out or eating or filling up the gas tank, I'm covering myself in that in that sense, but not really contributing to like the household overall, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah, that was definitely part of it. Which in hindsight, I would I would say if that if you have to rely on that to make your business plan work, then your business plan doesn't work. Oh, don't um, say that in the beer industry. I get shit for that all the time. <laughs> but I, I know. But uh, yeah, and we had to hire more staff too because this thing where I just thought it would be me and like maybe one full time person that like knows enough about the shop to run it while I go on vacation for a week or two, you know, once a year. Like that that was kind of like the original plans. So then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, we really need like four or five part-time people kind of filling in all the gaps and they have to be really knowledgeable about beer too. And I was also always kind of stubborn about like, they're going to get paid more than minimum wage. They're going to get two, uh, two weeks paid, paid vacation. They're going to get like, they're going to get things that they wouldn't expect and we're going to retain people. And, and we did, we had really good retention, but so those things kind of kept our budget a little inflated. As you continued to grow, what were some of the like best times? What, what were some of those great days of the days when you were growing and everything's working well? Yeah, even in the final years, we would look back and go like, remember on like a Saturday when you would have like five people working the floor and we were just killed. We were just getting swamped all day long and having so much fun and, you know, trying people's home brews, helping them tweak recipes and those those really busy days where you just had like a lot of people come in and, and you knew that everyone had a good experience. Those are still some of you know my favorites. And we planned a lot of events and we did a lot of kind of community building, a lot of edu- you know classes and those sort of things. And we created a lot of opportunities uh, opportunities for ourselves to to look back on and say, wow, that was really cool. So we had a lot of those. But really, the best moments were yeah always always surrounded by or involving community and. Um, just being involved and, and feeling people's appreciation and, and respect. And those, those were the, the good days. Well, so walk me through how the, you, how you transitioned from being a home brew store only to at some point you decided that you had to become a brewery as well. Yeah. The, it was kind of a culmination of a few things. People just kept like, like asking like, well, when are you adding the brewery? And I'd be like, well, never. And I'd be like, well, I'd be like, you really should. And then, and I was like, no, like I don't, I don't want to. Those look expensive, and my making money. Like, right. I'm actually like, I can start paying myself now, and uh, and the business still has money left over, and like, we're good. But then uh, there was enough of this money kind of sitting around. Like, well, I guess I should 
consider that a little bit. Then the landlord came to me at one point and said, hey, the unit next to you is getting looked at, um, and so is the one next to it. You should take that unit and put a brewery. <laughs> your, your landlord sold you on doing the brewery. This is yeah, awesome. Yeah, still, yeah. He, so he's still kind of pushing. He's like, you know, you should do it soon because, I, you know, if you're planning on it in the future, I don't know if, if it's going to be available anymore. You know, When I moved in and when the coffee shop moved in, the entire building, which was like five units, was completely empty. And it had been empty for years. The landlord was the one who was like trying to kind of build that up. But um, Do you know, in hindsight, was it one of the breweries that's existing today that was looking at the space? No, it wasn't even a brewery. It was like some retail shop. He was just saying people are starting to, mm. to ask about this space. And it was, yeah, it wasn't a competitor per se, which actually, you know, would have been great. We could talk about that too. But so then one day I'm talking to my, my buddy, Michael Skubik, who you can find his writing in the um, Hess Brewing, Mike Hess Brewing, when they did their first little small brewery. Michael Skubik was there helping with the setup and he ended up writing this blog kind of tracking the whole thing. And I feel like a lot of people have probably used it to be like, I'll do these, I'll do this dumb idea too. You know? mm-hmm. I was, I was this is wondering. the roadmap to success. Look at them. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was friends with the guys at the coffee shop and we'd always hang out. He owns a distillery called Old Harbor. We spent a lot of time just kind of talking about booze in general and business and stuff. And one day um, I knew he had helped a lot with like the licensing and planning at, at my cast and that with his own adventure. So I was like, hey, don't you think it would be kind of crazy and stupid if I just put in like a half barrel system and brewed maybe once a month and just had like specialty bottle releases and maybe like one tap that was like a lager or something like that. And but like didn't give a crap about it, like just made it like I can legally do this and that's it. You're sort of like you're here shopping anyways. This is another revenue stream. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like super. I was like low like i don't want to invest a lot in it i don't want to spend a lot of time with it i just want to be like on a saturday i choose to brew a batch boom there's a batch on tap you know and he goes uh, yeah that'd be easy and I, I was like oh easy okay and it's like how you know we help me put together the licensing and all that stuff he's like yeah and so once i start there then i start you know telling lee chase chatting with him about what we want to do and talking to reyes de mendy and bill batten and Peter Zion talking to these people like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing this. We're like, oh yeah, cool, cool. And then Lee's like, you know, I've done the math and seven barrels is the minimum of what you need to do, you know? <laughs> and a few people had echoed that. I was like, seven barrels, okay, I got like 400 square feet of space. All right, let's do it. <laughs> it does. That's tight. Yeah. So it just kind of started as like, you know, and then I'm plugging them all in the, in the spreadsheet and everything. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess that much money does look cool. Yeah, let's do it. What was the market plan at this point, though? Because obviously that changed. If you yeah. were originally yeah. going to have one draft line every once in a while, and now you're going to have yeah. seven barrels of beer at a time, you had to have planned exactly. to sell some outside the store, or was it still only planned to be selling on-site? The, the plan was to be in site, on-site, and um, and that's that's where, like, you know, I'm maybe foreshadowing too much, but that's definitely where it's like, okay, those are the moments. When you look back, where, and that wasn't the right choice. Yeah, where it's just like, why don't I just stick to what I wanted to do? And that's and that's a big theme for me, honestly. But yeah, there was that was kind of the trajectory where it started with like, okay, you know, we've got a couple extra ten ish thousand dollars laying around. We can invest it in this little thing. We'll make it nice and good. It'll be quality, but it won't be consistent. Or like it won't be consistently yeah. available. But but when you get it, it'll be good. And you'll be happy you had it. And it won't it'll need to break even and that's it. Because it won't be the main thing we do. And I honestly thought of that as like, 
well, maybe then that'll mean one day we have enough demand and enough reputation that if we do open a bigger brewery, like it'll be a proven concept. And the, I think the cart got in front of the horse a little bit there as just talking with, you know, people who were like my role models were like, yeah, yeah, go for it, you know, and yeah, do it. I was like, okay, they're telling me to go for it. So, so I must have something here. Yeah. So, so then we ended up needing a little, you know, more cash. So we got like a $40,000 loan from, from the SBA. Um, you had to write a business plan and everything for that, put all that together. So it was a good learning experience. Just kind of pieced it all together. Frankenstein it together. Okay. Did, who did you go with for the equipment? For, for the fermenters, we had some SS Brutech. Oh no, not SS Brutech. We had, um, you could tell how happily my brain is just dumping information that it doesn't need anymore. Um, there's a, uh, in San Diego and Escondido, there's a mid-sized to large brewery manufacturer. They're all over the place. Premier stainless. So we had a premier seven barrel. And then I had some like three and a half barrels from, I forget which company, but a small kind of slightly cheaper company. And then the, the hot side was all dairy equipment. So somehow I found this website that just had like a farm full of dairy equipment, like a yard full of it. And just kind of went through the measurements like that could look like a kettle. That could look like a mash tun. Got those for a couple grand and then kind of built our own, you know, manifold, added a burner, all that sort of stuff. So on the hot side, went as cheap as possible. On the cold side, tried to go more, you know, more control and quality stainless and all that. But um, and then built a cold box with a cool bot, like did all of like the homebrew MacGyver hacks, you know, yeah. that you end up spending too much time till you finally forgot the money to like not worry about it, you know. So did the the lineup design change since you decided to go bigger? Did you have to? Uh, you're producing more beer at this point. I guess let's start with that, and then I have. A, an important question after that too, but what well, you can do the same thing where you still play on this, like brewing what you wanted when you wanted, no real consistency and just, or, or did that be different too? Yeah. That's kind of like, we started with this idea of like, you know, I bought these three and a half fermenters so that I could either half batch or I could do a seven barrel and then split and then do like experiments. So I was like, we're a homebrew store. So, you know, we're going to run through like the BJCP categories. We're going to have a lot of variety of styles that people aren't brewing or people don't know about and so that'll give us an opportunity to talk about them teach people about them uh we're gonna split batches and do yeast experiments or dry hopping experiments or whatever sort of stuff and i'm going to document everything and it's going to be a resource for people to learn about all these things and i'm going to brew while i run <laughs> all this stuff so that was my next uh, question we, did you hire somebody or were you the brewmaster essentially initially i was the the head brewer you know, and we, we had pulled a lot of these ideas that we had from having, you know, the, this half barrel thing to, into the bigger system because we thought how novel it would be. Mm-hmm. But they proved to not be efficient. For instance, if it's a half barrel thing, be like, yeah, anyone at the shop can, there's tank space. Yeah, you can brew them. And, and well, maybe we'll cycle through like who's in charge of making a few brews. You can do like three and then, and then we'll cycle through and someone else can do three. And that makes sense if it's like something you can do on a Saturday evening and mm. not really worry about it. We tried fitting that on and I was like, okay, no, that's not going to work. There has to be consistency in how the tanks are measured. Like everything has to, you know, we actually have to um, have way more consistency there. So so eventually, so after about maybe six months, I had one of the, the team members was eager and, and qualified to step up and kind of take over that and put me more in a, like kind of an executive position of like kind of managing, you know, let's get someone to manage the shop. Let's get someone to manage the brewery. I'll kind of, I'll, I'll be jack of all trades and I'll fill in any gaps that, that come in. And then eventually did, he got replaced 
by another team member once he moved on. Uh, he now brews at El Segundo. He's a great, great brewer. But that's, I think, when we did the best was when finally I got it out of my head that like we could just kind of do this thing where we're sort of like free will and home brewers on a seven barrel system. You know, it's like stupid. Yeah. 200 um, gallons of whatever it is every once in a while ends up being a lot of yeah, beer, which, which is going to be my it, next question. Were you guys going to yeah. the beer? Because you probably were brewing, I would think, kind of regularly because you wanted to fill the taps, right? But Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's when we started realizing, okay, we're going to have to start brewing some cores because we need to take care of our yeast a lot differently than what the original plan was. Like, I can't just make a, a five-liter starter and be like, good to go, you know? Yeah. Um, so we need to manage our yeast more, so we need kind of a consistent core. So, like, let's think about what those should be, and let's still try as much as possible to, you know, to branch out from there. But then since we're brewing those consistently, okay, we need to move these volumes faster because like we're really trying to stick to like three months shelf life max on everything. So we need to find places to sell it. So we were lucky in that like we found a couple like really good restaurants and bars within the neighborhood who actually gave us like permanent handles. So for two of our core brands, we just had these permanent handles to be like, okay, like half of that's going there and then we have the rest for the tasting room and then we can, we can kind of move things that way but eventually we had we did have to really pivot and start to think like how does an actual brewery operate you know and it was something that we all knew but i think the success of the homebrew store and sort of like the you know the reputation we had for just being knowledgeable people in the industry and and friendly people in the industry that were friends with everybody is kind of felt like well this is just going to work because we're nice you know (laughs) And because we know beer, like we really know beer and like we know business enough that I can maybe ignore some of these other factors about what the beer manufacturing business is. Like I can kind of ignore some of those things. And then until finally it's like, no, you just, you have to kind of kill. So eventually we did transition a little bit more into offsite and have to think about like, okay, we need someone to go around and sell the beer and deliver the beer and all that sort of stuff. So. Clean lines, managed counts. Yeah. That- yeah. The yeah. part of the industry that no one wants to do, so no one's going to have it in their business plan if it's about fun. So when did you actually open the brewery part itself? 2014. So it was a couple of years later. Yeah. Um, it was kind of the end of 2014, so it was really, really like, you know, more like almost three years later. During that time, I would assume that the addition of the brewery kind of helped the homebrew store, just, you know, symbiotic. I'm at a restaurant. I, t- I like this beer. I walk in mm-hmm. and I t- try the beer, and then you tell me how I can make it in my house, essentially. But I think the two businesses would kind of have grown and built together for a period yeah they definitely did and um you know that that ebbed and flowed throughout the years but then also throughout the seasons and we we found that you know homebrew really cranks in january february march when tasting rooms don't yeah and then the tasting room cranks in may june july august when the homebrew store doesn't so we kind of found this nice like how this these actually fill in the gaps pretty well and keep our kind of overhead you know obviously you have margin mixes in there. There's differences in, in the margins there. But they, yeah, so you did have some of that. And then we, we really had to get creative with like how we plan these events to, to sort of to make that logical connection for people. So like here's this tasting, like now let's talk about how beer is made too. But so we were always, you know, experimenting with that. Did you have to expand the brewery at some point? Was, or was it continued to grow sort of in that same space? The goal was just to kind of keep it in that space. You know, my original plan for the homebrew store was to have that one location, eventually three locations in the county, sort of cut the county down like north to south and start 
inching more and more, like eating more and more of like the online competitors revenue. And with that, we thought we could use this brewery to then do like duplicate tasting rooms in these locations, maybe one day eventually move the brewery to a, a better spot because the neighborhood just isn't really set up for the logistics of a brewery, like mm-hmm. grain disposal, all that sort of stuff was challenged. Like we made it work, but it was, you know, there wasn't space for the empty shells. Like, so it was just a lot of, like, it just was never meant to be that. And it was obvious, right? Like I thought we were innovative, but so what, you know? Well, there's quite a few um, breweries that were in North Park where they kind of do the same thing, like kind of just cobbling it together and making it work. Yeah, there's part of that. And then part of them kind of knew, you know, like North Park Beer Co., they're, they're there. They, they had those challenges too, but but he knew that was his goal was, was to be a larger producer, of, you know, in terms of volume. So that the space was kind of, he knew from the get-go what his footprint really needed to be. Mm-hmm. Whereas we were kind of trying to shoehorn a much larger concept into what was supposed to be a much smaller concept, more of a boutique sort of feel. And now all of a sudden it's like a micro pub, you know, sort of feel. That took some time for us to for me to get over kind of like what I was trying to create was this boutique thing, but like, well, but we had all this freaking beer we had to move around. So it kind of took a while to be like, okay, like I just have to focus on moving beer around. And the, the feel of the space needs to be how someone walking in who just wants to drink some pints of hazy IPA, I need to adjust to them now because I've already let this cart get too far ahead of me that I need to run up and like get in front of it. So that's another kind of moment. But I definitely want to talk about some of the pain points. I think there's some some growth points in there too, but let's take a quick break and come back. I actually want to ask about the number of seats that you had and how that evolved mm-hmm. based on what you're talking about in the tasting room. But yeah. Take a quick break. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbids.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. All right, thanks for sticking in there. So I said I wanted to ask about the tasting room, and the reason is most of this is all about um, mistakes everybody makes, but they... It, the whole thing started with all the mistakes that I made, and this is one that I made. So in our brewery, we, we kind of did the same thing. It was boutique. It was going to be – originally, it was going to be 100% distro was the idea that I didn't want to have a tasting room. I didn't want to schedule. I didn't want to have to feel like you know, I could go in. And, you know, the yeast to be my boss, but other than that, I would do whatever. And then when you put in a tasting room, we were like, cool, we got this – I think we may have had 300 feet or something in the front and we had seats. If you really, when I went back and did the math, the profit per seat to be able to move the beer that we needed to move, we had nowhere near enough seating and there was no way it was ever going to make money. So we had to expand outdoor seating. We had to pull some of the production space back at one point, which you can argue good or bad, but I don't, it, it just changed the whole dynamic of what I'd originally planned for it to be because I had to move the beer on site. I'm just curious sounds like you probably didn't have a big ass tasting room and a bunch of tables and TVs and yeah you know it took it took a lot of iterations over the the years yeah you know since like we started with 900 square feet for the homebrew store kind of hot dog shaped and then we added on another 900 square foot hot dog right next to it 
And we thought, okay, homebrew store, brewery in the back, tasting room. We got it all zoned so that you can take your beers kind of wherever you want. You know, we had some, like, these original, like, the original concept we never did was, like, and I'm glad we did it, was <laughs> to put these, like, poles with, like, a little table. Because our, our friend who was an architect was like, you know, when I see you in the shop, you're just, it's you and, like, a couple customers standing around and you're talking. So we're going to create these spaces for, like, you to go around and talk with people. And, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and that then, definitely sounds romantic, right? Like, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, let's do it. That kind of didn't work. And then we ended up just kind of like, we're building out the tasting room, we're building out. By, by the time we get the brewery in, it, in there, and I'm like totally over budget, like we have no more money for me to do anything with the tasting room. So it's like, it's going to get a coat of paint. There's going to be like a pallet table. Yeah. And like, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Later when we we're talking about advice, you know, I have a lot of advice on that. Like what? What would you change? You know what I was talking about? Like with the homebrew store, I knew what I was selling. I was selling an experience to people, a way that people wanted to be treated in the context of a homebrew store. And it worked because I really knew what that context, I was clear on what my context was and I was clear on what my deliverables were. When it came to the brewery in the tasting room, I had a vision of how they would kind of connect together with the homebrew store. But then especially like, I didn't prioritize that part in the budget. Hmm. And that really should have been the priority in my budget. The equipment we already know should have been a lot smaller. It should, it wasn't right size for the space. It was just you know, it should have just been like a proof of concept model or something like that. And by not focusing on the aesthetics and the feeling of the tasting room, it made it really hard for like average Joe to walk in and be like, these people make good beer because they're looking for, especially as the industry around us matured a little bit and went from like, you're stoked to be sitting on a grain bag and a keg at Lost Abbey to like, no, like now even Lost Abbey has nice chairs. Mm-hmm. Like it just changed so much that around that time of 2014, 2015, the consumer was already expecting a little bit more of like, you know, can you put a plant in here? Can you do like, can you do anything? I'm sure like Stone the helped with that with their little Disneyland place they opened. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, and they have these great experiences. You go get great beer. You know, I was sort of like, it doesn't matter where you sit or how you sit. You're just going to love this beer because it's a, it's a style that you can't get somewhere else. And that's what we're stoked about. There's plenty of people who are into that but not enough to turn the volume we needed. So at first we just didn't have enough seating at all. And that made it very unwelcoming. So even like our core customers didn't really have like a place to just like settle in. And then eventually, you know, honestly it took me a few years to kind of like turn my head around on it and treat the whole space as a tasting room, including the retail. So we did, you know, several iterations of refining how the retail is presented and making it feel more clean more inviting to like the average consumer who doesn't know what that is. A home brewer stoked to walk into a Home Depot look, right? Mm-hmm. But like the average person sees a Home Depot look and like, I don't know what's happening over here. So we had to, you know, think about how the retail's laid out, think about how that integrates into the space, do more of like a beer hall sort of vibe, big comfortable tables with bench seating and add more seating and, and eventually even TVs, you know, we're at the end, we're just sort of like, yeah, I don't care, like whatever you want. You want a TV? Sure. I'll watch the TV with you too. You know, I don't know if that kind of answers the question, but yeah, it, it took some time to, to get to the, the seating. At the end, I feel like we, we finally like had that formula and I was like, yeah, we should have done this five years ago. Some of that's just a lot of us started without, you know, especially on the beer side, a lot of experience. So as the more you sit in there and you look around, you're like, oh yeah, should have done this way. It'd be interesting to see. I plan on really correlating all these stories at about 100 podcast episodes. I'm not sure that that would have changed the end result, but it definitely yeah. may have had an impact. But So let's talk about that a little bit. So you've got these two businesses opening, 16, 17, maybe you've kind of figured out 
Uh, more or less some of the things you wanted to change. You're making some some updates to it. In San Diego at this time, competition's kind of going crazy. Are you still seeing growth? Did you start to see struggle at that point? I know I interviewed another homebrew guy out of Houston, and he told me it was like 16, 17 when this shit just dropped out for him and really got ugly. And tell me, mm-hmm. what was your experience as far as the growth goes? Yeah, on the homebrew side, yeah, like 16, 17 was definitely a watershed moment. We just weren't pulling in that revenue like we were on the homebrew side, which at the time we thought, well, that's fine because the the brewery's kicking in and it's a higher margin product. So the, the product mix is going to kind of keep us in about the same place of, you know, of net. And that wasn't exactly true because we also, at the same time, we're trying to figure out how to make the tasting room work. So we we're mm-hmm. just investing as much as we could in, in that. But yeah, 16, 17 was tough on the, the homebrew side. You know, in the industry at the time, everyone's just like, you know, this has happened before, hang in there. And, I th- you know, we have a great reputation. In 2018, we got the American Homebrew Association Homebrew Store of the Year. We were the first store to ever receive that award. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. And that was like, okay, we're, you know, we just got to hang in there. It's it's fine. And I think if it was just the homebrew store, we would have hung in there. No problem. Because the homebrew store is something that like my, my dad used to drive semi trucks and he had his own company and he had his one truck and he would say, you know, sometimes you got down to your one truck company and sometimes you got up to your 10 truck company, but then you got to know where your one truck company is and what that looks like and what it takes. And that was really hard with our dual model to ever be like a one, mm. a true one truck company, you know, cause you, you need someone to brew it really well. And, you know, just all the maintenance involved in that. A lot more infrastructure. Uh, and that, yeah. And the hours are different, you know, the home, you know, they kind of, they can, but yeah. Yeah. So with the homebrew store, you know, it continued to be the thing that paid all of our bills. And then with the brewery, during that time, North Park especially became more and more popular for those people familiar with San Diego or who are just maybe moving to San Diego. There was once a time when none of you ever wanted to go to North Park. Like there was a moment not so long ago where going to North Park was like, you're crazy. And now it's like every bro uh, in the world is hanging out in North Park. But that was actually good for us. The more breweries that landed in North Park, the better we did. More people uh, would come to the area. Yeah. So so I always welcomed that. And we were we were friends with all those people too. So that was always nice because you have more people to kind of share resources with, share ideas with. They would send people into us, we'd send people into them. So that that was always good. So from that perspective of like a, a brewery that's seeing a lot of other breweries come in, that was a good thing for us, especially since we were different than all of them because we had a homebrew store. So like mm-hmm. we kind of play this angle of like, we're not really your competitor. We're just like these homebrew nerds. So they would send people to us quite a bit for like, if you want to try something a little different, you know, go there. When you guys definitely had kind of, even with the other breweries over there, it felt like when I was there anyways, it's kind of like a, almost like a bar hopping thing where you just, you experienced all of them totally. a little bit. But- yeah. That was a big thing. So you'd see the, you know, all the zonies coming in and go hit all the breweries. And we had, we even made little cards that were like, you know, here's all the breweries and walking distance, how to get there. So yeah, it was a big, big thing that we, that we loved. So we, we experienced that too. Like when we first opened, there were you know two breweries in town then there were three, then there were five and it really built and grew for a long time. And then somewhere around, I would say maybe 18 people just sort of trenched into their brewery and you just got way less travel between the two you know, for us. And then I don't know if, that happened for you, but I know we talked about Alex over at Intergalactic and he kind of saw some of that too, where the competition started to become a negative when it was early a positive. But did you experience that too? Yeah. I think it was different. You know, Alex was in like the the quintessential like business park 
environment. Mm-hmm. We were in like an urban walkable park your car. You can hit all, you can walk to 10 breweries in the next three hours sort of spot. So that was a little different for us. I can think of like, you know, cause he was near Duckfoot and Bowles Point and these other breweries. I can think of how I can see how in that context, it would have been a little harder. You know, Ale Smith was like two or three roads down from them. So I can see how that was a challenge, challenge for them in that space. But, and it was funny because, you know, I think Alex really had to experience like when it was cool to be the small guy. So all of a sudden it was like, no one thought you could make good beer if you were the small guy. Mm-hmm. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? You know, and you had to convince the, a, a different set of customers. So where did you start to see some of the struggles? Like what were the pain points that you experienced? And, you know, looking back for me, and I said this many times, but there were a lot of catastrophic moments in which I pivoted that I fit four or five of them back. I probably shouldn't have pivoted. I should have shut mm-hmm. down. Did you experience yeah. some of these problems that you found a way around, but maybe were the harbinger of things to come? You know, I think the like the first thing was not sticking to my original idea about just having a small operation. And then the second thing was not really thinking through, and I didn't really know what seven barrels would feel like. So like not really mm-hmm. thinking through what it would look like to and feel like to create that much volume in, in that space. Um, I'd been around a lot of larger breweries, but never really like made myself feel it, built the omelet, so to speak. The term my friend, my restaurant friend makes like, you crack an egg, where do you throw it away? Okay trash can needs to go here mm-hmm. and then you do this you need to okay that load well but like never really thought through the whole process of the business so that would be another one and then you know i think there was honestly like two to three years of just sort of stubbornness with me feeling like this will work out eventually everyone's losing money so i'm just one of them i know we make good beer and we'll, we'll tweak where we can so i don't really have these like you know those few years aren't really like watershed moments for me it's more of just like looking back like yeah it just wasn't working Mm-hmm. And we kept going with it. Why we did do like second runs of like financing eventually. And that could be a moment where, you know, pulling in investors and everything else. But we had, I still believe that we had good plans and that like those projections were smart and were conservative enough to actually work. But there were moments where I felt really scared to make decisions because I felt like the status quo would get me through long enough. Then it would someday be really easy to make that risk because we'd just be flushed with cash. Mm-hmm. And so there are moments where I had the cash to spend it and I just felt really conservative about it, which sounds smart. But in hindsight, it's like, no, I really probably should have just like went, well, we have this cash boom, we're spending it and we're going to make this work. And here's how the team's going to look because we had that all penciled out. So I think one other big thing I'll end that question on would be I never really had like a partner. So I didn't really have a structure for allowing myself to be a human that has fears and anxieties and dreams and visions and goals and goes through divorces and and like has experiences. And then someone else or a team of people to say like, yes, all that shit's happening, but also like this is this is how we're gonna move the business forward. Mm-hmm. And those things were like, you know, always attempted to be kept separate. Like in my mind, I always you know knew that those things were separate, but I do think it made me very risk averse at moments where I should have been a lot more aggressive. There was no one else who had the authority to say like, "You just gotta do this right now and and get me through this part, and we'll be okay." So there was a lot of like, "I'm gonna sit back and just kind of wait for this to to kind of come together, and then watch the the money go away." 
Yeah. So were there investments that looking back, you think you could have made that would have made a difference? Yeah, I think we really needed to get out of that space. I felt very attached to the space because it was like our first spot. And we either needed to move all the brewery equipment to another facility or just like shut the brewery down temporarily and even expand the homebrew stuff and kind of push into the the online world a little bit more focused. That's when we actually started talking with Alex about uh, when he was kind of going through his struggles with Intergalactic. We're like, what if we just combine forces here? You have this warehouse space, like let's, you know, let's take over the world. And that that's like one of the examples of maybe that would have worked, maybe not, but I just felt very risk averse at that time, even though I, you know, I had, had the plan, had the people, I just, but just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't bear taking on the responsibility for for having this thing collapse. I actually felt more okay with letting it fade out and be something else's fault than with me just taking a risk and having the people around me to say, hey, it's fine, we took a risk, it didn't work out. But instead, I felt like a huge sense of responsibility that if I made a change or a big step and it didn't work, then, you know, it would all be my fault and no one would like me, right? (laughs) I get that. Obviously, one of the things that I do in this podcast is to try to break down what would have been a viable option and you know that would have been pretty big investment to have moved the mm-hmm. online was that something that you had played in that space and feel like there were some things you could have gone done to gone much deeper i guess looking back do you, yeah. do you think it would have been a truly viable win had you done that that's that's hard you know it because there was a few scenarios like you know i brought up the alex one and that one i don't know if that would have worked in hindsight you know because I think, honestly, I think Alex was also just kind of over it, too, and just kind of waiting for someone to just say, like, someone or something to just be like, dude, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he loves where he has, um, he's at now. He just gets to brew and exactly. not think about the business part of it. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, in, ter- in terms of, like, what I could have seen be actually more successful looking back, it would have been a brewery of the right size, which we eventually did do. We actually kind of during COVID, I, we can't make enough beer. We're not built on the packaging model. Let's just... Like, I've been sick of this seven barrel thing for a long time. I'm going to just sell this off by a little spike one barrel. And we're going to try to be like kind of more what we wanted to be. But at that point, I didn't change the aesthetics of the shop. So we had like this giant tap wall and it should have just Mm. been knocked out and become a smaller thing and more space for seating and community engagement, that sort of stuff. And it kind of like never really happens. So I I think, um, yeah, I can think of countless times where either myself or members of my team who were so committed to making it work had had good ideas and we, we kind of backed off because it just felt like it would be too much of a cosmetic change or too much of a sort of structural change, even though I feel like we were all pumped and ready to go. So yeah. when what were those moments that you finally, I guess you could say, came around or decided that this wasn't going to work? Was it obviously post-COVID? Because it was, when did you close? Was it yeah, we closed 22. So May 31st, 2022 was like last day we were done. Yeah, you know, because you, you take this context of like 2018, 2019, we're working really hard on like how we think about the tasting room and how we sort of shift how we approach the space. Finally started like hiring tasting room managers, like people to be like, your job is this specifically. And they're doing great jobs. We're seeing that kind of turn around. We're seeing more people come by and use our space as like a place to drink a beer or two. January 2020 was like the best month for the brewery, like ever. So like the worst month for beer spots in general was like the best one we had ever had. Like we're like, we cracked it. Like we've got the right mix. Like 
space feels good. So coming into pandemic and shutdown and everything, it was a blow to what we were building with the tasting room. It kind of did suck a lot of that momentum. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we had this homebrew store and people were sitting at home a lot. And so we saw people we hadn't seen in three years. We're like, well, I'm just going to give you as much money as I can. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to homebrew. You'll see me every other week. People were extremely supportive. But the brewery side of it kind of just became, again, like this burden that we we couldn't. There was no reason to brew a beer. You know, we had enough beer to last. And then we were then it's getting to like, OK, we're starting to get old. We can brew like one batch. It's got to be an IPA. Mm-hmm. And so we just started being like, only only thing we can sell is hazy IPA because that's the only thing that's going to move fast enough. And that's where I was really like, not what I want to be. So we switched the, the brewery to get back to it. We pivoted. We did really well. We actually finally did the online stuff that we should have done five years prior. It kind of, it kind of forced us into like, the only way you're going to make money is if you have a good online thing. So we mm-hmm. finally like we invested in that. We did that. We did, I think, a really good job with it. We actually got to the point where you know, we kind of right-sized the size of the team. We were able to do it in a way where kind of like all of you can stay on board long enough to like find something, but you should start finding something now, you know? And so our head brewer ended up going to work at Puesto where he makes amazing lagers. And then other members of our team kind of moved on. And and I felt really good about that. Like we were able to kind of pull the bus over and let people get out. And And so that was a big victory. You were cool uh, losing the head brewer because you were going to downsize anyways. And so it was going to be easier to kind of manage it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I put it out to him, like, my goal is to keep you full time, but that may not look like only brewing. It's Mm going to have to involve other things. Most likely in the end, that wasn't really true, but I was like, I can't promise you that it's going to be like this. I think it might have to be like 30 and 10 of something else, you know? And for him and his, you know, his trajectory, and he was with us for a while, and, you know, he, I want to brew. That's what I want to do. So I was like, well, that's what you need to do. So yeah. he ended up finding a great job at a great place, you know, working under one of the, the lager kings of, of San Diego. And so that was like a bummer because put the brewing back on me. And, you know, I hadn't been doing what he was doing over the past, you know, three years, the prior three years, right? So like the quality became a key issue and we we worked really hard to do. And he helped a lot with like, you know, pulling up old notes and helping and come in on brew days to sort of right size things and everything. So we, we, you know, the quality obviously was was important to us, but I, I, you know, I don't think we were as consistent without him as we were with him. But it actually got to a point where with the size of that brewery, while we were still closed, we, we kept it very like cautious. We were with people like we've seen them open and reclose so many times we're just going to stick in the middle so we're going to do this thing like online orders you can come in for pickup or come into the shop and we have like kind of a, a bar we kind of turn the whole bar kind of around so that it kind of blocks the whole space if you need anything we'll go get it for you and so we found this like operating model that was really badass where we got to be super efficient because we we'd all work eight hours a day we'd all come in at the same time and it'd be like two or three of us maximum and for the first three hours, we'd package all the orders we had. That would be like 90% of the revenue for the day. Package them up, get them all organized. They're there for people to come in. Those people can come in. They could have a beer if they wanted, or they can get a crowler. And if they needed something else, no problem. We'll, we'll grab it for you and we'll, we'll ring you up for it. And we had this model that was like, labor is kicking ass. Like we're, we're, not at, we're not generating as much revenue, but we're totally good. And when we switched to like, okay, full on, like, let's go, like nothing changed on the revenue side. Hmm. It was just like, we're 
maybe generating a little bit more of just like people coming in and having a few extra pints. But most of our home brewers are still just ordering it online so they can pick it up. So now I have to do that while I'm entertaining a person sitting at the bar. So we need more staffing now. Uh, we have more hours and kept looking at like the runway and saying, okay, well, if it continues like this, you know, we'll have, we'll have a year, but like it should in three months, it should shift, you know, the summer months are coming, it should start to shift. And, and just like, kind of, it's like, it's not shift. It's not turning back on. Like all the cylinders aren't coming back to anything like pre 2020 numbers. So, so it just became a moment of, and I might be getting it ahead of myself, but it, it became a moment where it was like, Hey, investors, I think we're just going to run out of money in like six months. And I will literally just give this to any of you. Like I will sign over all of my shares to like, you guys can vote on it. One of you can step up and take it. And the rest of you can vote on how that looks. If you have a friend who wants to invest and uh, do whatever, like, pull, like let's start talking. Otherwise we need a whole boatload of more money to just kind of see what happens. So if you got some, sure. <laughs> no one was like, I want it. Cause I was like clear. Cause the other, the alternative is I would rather pay off all of our vendors pay my crew all the way to the very end, have them work with me to do like a big sell. We're going to throw a party. We're just going to close this thing down. Unless someone wants to come in and take it over, I'll stay on as like advice or whatever you need. But like, I'm done. Like I'm out of ideas and I'm, and I know we're going to run out of money soon. Did you have a lease coming up or something or was there some? We also had a lease. We had a lease coming up too. So, and that was a, that was a big part of it. It wasn't all, it wasn't like a huge part of it, but it definitely, it did move that date. And, it, and I was like, we're actually lucky this coincides because our lease is up in about six months and we're going to run out of money in six months. So yeah, I don't want to re-sign a one year or a three year or anything else. Like I can negotiate till I'm blue in the face with the landlord to get some sort of, you know, deal or something like that, some sort of scheme that allows us to, you know, pay a percentage or, you know, something like that just keeps us around longer. But Things aren't turning the way I kind of predicted they would turn. And I'm talking to all my friends in the neighborhood and it's kind of the same for them. So I don't know, like, it doesn't feel responsible for me to try to talk anyone into this anymore. I had a similar experience when I was looking at mine where it was like, did, it's either going to be, you know, merge with somebody, get some new capital in and you just mm -hmm. got to write the business plan. of like, ah, if you give me 200 grand, here's how I can give you an 8% return. I had no, there was no way I could. I could tell you that, yeah. but I'd be completely fucking lying to you. Like, I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, that was, that was it. And we, you know, we reached out, I emailed all the vendors, like, you want to own a homebrew store? You know, the more beer guys, they, they have homebrew stores. So mm -hmm. like, you know, my plan was to be, was to become annoying enough to you that you had to buy me. That plan didn't work out. You know, you want to buy me anyway. You yeah. know, I think everyone kind of entertained it, but it, you know, it wasn't the time for anyone really to do that. Maybe if we had enough runway to go a year or two and say, hey, like, how about in two years you guys take us over? You know, we'll start collaborating now. We'll start figuring this out. There could have been some sort of version. I ended up uh, writing a, like a press release for the you know, San Diego Beer News that was just like, you know, this is what's happening. Looking for people that, who are interested in buying. I'm, you know, I'm moving on, basically. And you know, had people who were interested, had one scenario that, you know, they, they were like, we're ready to go. So we signed the, the letter of intent, which means I can't. Uh, entertain any more offers because he's like we're good and then we get down to the wire where i'm even like doing the handoff with like the, the team and everything like getting them ready to like meet and everything and and we're like two weeks away from where like the new lease needs to get signed and he's like um i don't have any money i'm like dude you signed this thing that said you had money oh yeah i did but my investor pulled out. i was like that's fucking you know so wow. then i was like i got two weeks now 
to call the other people who were interested and say, look, this sounds really like pathetic. So you're probably not going to be interested in this, but like, just make an offer and I'll give it to you if you want it. I'm not trying to sell you something. You know, I'll, you know, all the good and the bad you've already, you know, here's the numbers, but like, if you have the money, I think someone with passion and brains can pull this off. Passion, brains and money can pull this off. But by that point it was just kind of like, nah. Yeah. Um, so then it was like, all right, we're done. Well, I want to hear a little bit about some of these selling and then for sure your last week, I looked it on Instagram. It looks like you guys had some fun with it. So I definitely want to hear about how yeah. that kind of went. But let's take a really quick break. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewerydirect at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right. So again, clearly you, you ran some issues with the landlord too. So you said you had some people that were interested in buying it. Um, you had homeboy that uh, <laughs> signed a letter of intent without the capital to move forward. But you had said, or I don't know where I found it, that you had some people that actually were legitimately interested that the landlord would not approve. Yeah. So we did have about like four or five potential people that were ready to just take over the lease and kind of carry on. Yeah. At that point in time, the vote with the investors was to run through the scenario where basically someone is just going to kind of like take over my shares. Mm-hmm. They would have an opportunity to to bow out at that moment also, et cetera. And they would kind of continue to operate. I would retain some shares just to be like an advisor and have some investment. And I would play a role in kind of helping oversee things for a period of time, keep continuity, et cetera. And we would find people who had money, were interested, ready to go, bring them to the landlord. And the landlord's like, oh, no, we can't approve them. And the, the target kept moving. There was never like a clear, you know, I need a credit score of this. I need this much money in the bank. Like I need this kind of business plan. There was never a clear thing. And each time someone kind of would not pass muster, I'd say, okay, well, what's the problem with them? So then it was like, just tell me what you need. And then oh, I need to see, you know, 100K in the bank. So, okay, cool. Here's a guy with 100K in the bank and ready to go. Uh, but I see he's never really owned a homebrew store before. It's like no one's owned a homebrew store. <laughs> no, no one in their right mind has ever owned a homebrew store before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it was kind of like she just kept um, just denying everybody. So that kind of just started to feel again like I can't magic trick my way out of out of this one. You know, it, it seems clear that I'm not going to be able to satisfy what she's looking for, and even though I don't know what she's looking for. Do you think she had an she ulterior motive that she was just wanting to raise the rent or get somebody else in there or something? It seems that was the thing. It was like we had all agreed, like these people had agreed to the rent increase. They had agreed to like hmm. all sorts of like it was all laid out. This is what it's going to look like. Here's the da, da, da. some had agreed to paying like three months in advance in addition to like just trying to throw money at it. I don't know. You know, like um, you know when you come across certain people and you and you think either like you're an evil genius or you're just a fucking moron. And she was. She was one of those. And you don't know which one still to this day. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have my opinion. 
The follow-up question is always, and I don't even know if you know this, but we're, what, maybe 10 months after you closed? Is anybody in there? Yeah, so uh, there's a one of our customers ended up taking over the space. Um, he put in a, a brewery himself, just, just doing the brewery. Frustrating thing, too, was, you know, I had all of this equipment in there that I was like, hey, I would really love to not move this equipment. Right. It's brewing equipment anyways. And yeah, like you have because she kept saying like, well, I have people interested in your space. So you need to bring me someone really good or whatever. And I said, well, if you have someone it's so fine. I was like, you know, first was like, well, let me bring someone that's interesting to you to the space. And then we can win win here. Mm-hmm. And then she'd be like, well, you know, I'm a business broker too. I can help you. Like, no, like I don't need, I've got five people making offers. Like we're good. Thanks. So I think she wanted in on that cut. Maybe that's her ulterior motive, but I think she's such a moron. She can, there on picking sides. I'm comfortable going with the moron thing. <laughs> yeah. And it got to the point where, you know, we have all this equipment and everything in there. And I say, Hey, you know, I'm trying to sell it to whoever comes in. So let me know who's coming in. Can, and can I just keep this equipment here? For an extra month, I'll even pay you rent for that month for me to not be in the space. I'll sign a one-month lease just so I can leave my equipment there in case someone comes in and they want it. No, 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 no. So I move, you know, I hire an electrician, pull all the shit out, find a place to store everything. Customer of ours who who moved in the space ended up buying our equipment and then picking it all up and moving it in. So it was just it's one of those like perfect like of course. Yeah, you know? it's like it can't. The story can't get any dumber at this point. Yeah, yeah. And then Thanks, he had lady. to hire an electrician to rehook everything up, and it's like it was sitting right there. Let's talk about that closing time. We, I've interviewed a lot of different people, and everybody kind of has a different opinion. Like some breweries just sort of fade off into the sunset. Some people do what you did, and you know, advertise it, promote it, clear the inventory out. And I think from what I've seen. People that don't do it that way don't do it that way because they kind of want to face the failure piece of it, which I completely get. But it sounds like it kind of was a a good closing situation as far as financially. So walk me through how that went. What did you guys do? What was the plan and how did you execute it? It was, I think in that scenario, it was as good as possible. What I would have really loved to happen was someone come in and at least buy out my investors so that they could have at least got some something out of it. A big part of the story is that there's a group of people who were friends and customers who trusted me and the team to, you know, take this money and make it bigger. And in the end, we weren't able to do that for anybody. And that's that's the reality of it. It's what they signed up for, you know. So it's it's yeah. it's part of it. And you know, I've t- you know spoken with all of them individually. And like it breaks my heart that I that you you know you, I couldn't return on on this thing. And they're all like you know, dude, it's business. It's not you, but still, you know, still I do feel that I would have rather had to go another way. So in terms of financially, the business was able to just kind of get to a point where it didn't really owe anything else. Obviously the investors would say, well, I would have loved to have my money back. Right. So I want to just like acknowledge that piece. You know, for me, my priorities were to land it as, as gently as possible for mostly like primarily my team so let them all know ahead of time two things like this is what's happening. This is what it looks like. This is the decision we have to close. So find work and let me know if I can help or if, you know, if I can call someone for you or if I, you know, if you need anything for me. And and, and so we ended up writing a second press release to kind of put out there that was kind of included some of that, too. Like, you know, if, if you're looking for some of the most badass team in, in the county, you know, they're looking for jobs now. So like they were all able to find that, but then also say to them. But I also really, really need your help like <laughs> until the like last day. Uh, and on the last day, you know, you, you'll get your final paycheck and everything will be included and you get your sick leave on there and everything. And that's how, what I really wanted. Do you remember how long that was? Like, did you give them a month, two weeks? Or... Yeah, like a month. 
Yeah, because they, they had about two months of knowing that I wanted to sell and move on, maybe three months. And I think at that point, they were all honest, like I may or may not want to stay, mm-hmm. depending on this new owner and how it looks. So I know they were all kind of already paying attention. Uh, so yeah, they had a, a full month and they all, you know, were like, yeah, we'll we'll stick around to the, to the very end. I uh, wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So I'm like, yeah, well, we got a bunch of inventory we got to get rid of. So let's just do a big blowout and let's try to kick all the kegs and clean up as much as we can. Yeah. So I just felt like being honest with it was the best approach. And, you know, you mentioned that, like that kind of shame part, <clears throat> there's like the shame or like the, you know, there's like embarrassment. There's like, you're annoyed too. By this point, you're just tired of even thinking about it. Stressed like you out. Thought about it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've already been thinking about this for 10 years, you know, and, and living it. I'm lucky in that my, sounds like I'm pandering here, but like, I'm lucky that my wife just happens to be an extremely emotionally connected human being who professionally helps people think about career transitions and and change and those sort of things. And so way early on when I was even just kind of toying with the idea, starting to say it out loud for the first time, like, I think maybe I should consider this very early on, you know, the best advice I got was you don't have to, she was like, I'm not going to tell you what to do either way, but maybe uh, we were going on a trip or something. And she's like, maybe this weekend, you just take a little bit of downtime to think about what it would feel like to mourn the loss of your business. <laughs> so like, like bury it in your head, kind of walk through like that and see what that feels like. That doesn't mean that I'm telling you to do it. Cause if you decide to move on and like find a new location or do whatever, like I got you, like we'll, we'll figure it out. But during that, you know, I, having just someone say like, Hey, it's okay for you to sort of actually mourn and feel sad about this, even before you make the decision and just kind of try that on, uh, was, was pretty, pretty huge in the whole process. Because from there, once I had decided eventually to just close and move on, I did it again of, okay, I'm just going to mourn it. Like I'm burying an old friend that like I loved and was a big part of my life and I grew with it and, and everything. Um, and I've got these people with me who are a big part of it, and I want them to be part of the burial ceremony too. Mm-hmm. So it kind of it felt more like awake, and I think I even used those words, you know, in some of the press release stuff was come celebrate the life of of what the shop and this brewery was to the team and the customers and the community. You know, and that last like week, it was exhausting. First day that we opened, did our like, okay, this is like the beginning of the final week. Things was the most fucking insane day. I think I saw. 200 people just nonstop for eight hours, just like coming through the door. We had a line of like 20 people for the entire day, just coming up, you know, getting what they could, people crying, people saying like, you know, thanks for everything. I'm so sad to see you go, but I'm so proud of you. And so that was, you know, it was just a big emotional experience, very exhausting. But uh, that whole week was just basically like that. Um, And we got to say cheers to everybody. I got to give a rant about hyper consumerism and, and hyper growth and how it's not sustainable. <laughs> I got to get on my soapbox a little. I actually was um, going to ask you about that because you put that in that letter that you went out said what our society is unhealthily obsessed with constant growth and expansion and market dominance. Yeah. What, are you talking about someone specific here or what do you mean by that? <laughs> I'm talking about like all of us, you know, and myself included, I'm not immune to it, you know, I'm not in a vacuum, but you know, I think uh, like when I look back a lot of those decisions I made and those things I talked about, like with, the size of the brewery and everything. A lot of those were kind of fed by like, but yeah, you could have more if you do this. Mm. And it kind of took this thing that I, I, I really think that's where I failed the most was just not sticking to my gut and my plan, which was to always be small. 
and to always have this thing that I could maintain. It was big enough to to feed me and my family. And like, that was it. That was like, but there's always this push coming from everywhere of like, yeah, but you should be growing more. You should be pushing further and further. Like you should have more. And it's really hard, you know, because th- there's part of that is true. Like you do have to keep mushing, pushing and growing. But what's that actually look like? Is it is it fiscally? Is it, you know, mm-hmm. like, can I grow in my influence? Can I grow in the way I help people? Can I grow in the way that uh, I extend the retention of my employees? Like there's so many ways I could grow. But the thing that gets talked about the most and the thing that gets applauded the most is when you open a new set, like a new location or you expand something, you put more physical stuff. And I always felt this really resentment that, you know, it was kind of like the field of dreams thing where like you had to build this big, beautiful thing in order for people to give you the money for having a big, beautiful thing. But like, if you didn't look like that, like, you know, you weren't worth it to them. Like you weren't fitting this other need where they also need to feel like they're contributing to a thing that's big and flashy too. We kind of equate success a, you know, with growth, whether it's there or not. It's weird. Yeah. And, you know, you, you could pick that apart. And, you know, I, I pick it apart a lot, too. But I just feel like I come back to this theme a lot of, like, everyone just wants everything to just, like, constantly grow. And it's like, why? You know, what if everyone's just fine? Well, it's part of the reason I started the podcast in a way, too, is that the industry at large really lauds and heralds the people who are expanding, growing. We're talking mm-hmm. about barrelage. No one ever talks about profitage. You know, it's and no. so it's kind of like that whole piece of like, right, but did you have fun last month? Are you like this fucking job? Like, do you really want to yeah. brew um, a shitty light Pilsner every day of your life? Like, I don't know. It's yeah. A, yeah, the, it's an interesting perspective for sure. A couple of things that I wanted to ask you, and one of them it's a couple different interviews I've done that sort of the people have done a last day like this. There has been a tinge of anger and, and most of them were able to kind of know that that wasn't necessarily right, but they felt it anyways. But when you would see people come in and you had 200 people at the door and if they had been here last week, you may not have been closing. Did you experience any of that? Or just like, what the fuck were you? Like, <laughs> yeah, we joked about it, you know, you know, behind behind doors, we would joke about that sometimes. And, and we but we'd always try to keep an open mind to, you know, we don't know what, what's going on in people's lives. And it's hard, you know, pe- people are stressed, people are, you know, we're all part of this collective stress. And we can't remove ourselves from that. And, and we can't remove, you know, I need people to give me the benefit of the doubt. I, so I, I got it. We got to give it to them, too. Yeah, there, there definitely were parts of that. For me, it really was like in 2019, the end of 2019 was when I started kind of ranting with co- with colleagues saying, especially retail environment colleagues, brick and mortar retail. The the era of like shop small is like the marketing behind it has grown, but the actual like boots on the ground of it has just fucking disappeared. Like it went from my December was like a reliable, like this is going to be the first or second best month of the year, period, to like the worst month of my year. <laughs> it, it it just became this thing that was like, everyone's talking about it, but no one's actually here. And and I started to feel that and I started to get it kind of, but for me, it's, I don't think, I think really good people are just in a really bad system. And that's where we kind of tie back into this like obsession with growth and hype and constant, like what's the new hottest thing. And I think that's the system that, you know, I know when you use that word, the system, you know, it's kind of, it sounds cliche. With a capital TV, S, but, it's a big. But but it, but it is this mechanism that, that we're all part of, and it's part of what makes growth happen. It's part of what spins Wall Street. It's part of all those things. And, and we're taught that. And so I 
try to be really careful about criticizing people because I think all humans are really good. We just get stuck in in systems that don't actually serve our long-term collective needs. And I can't blame anybody for that. You know, I can point out a million things I'm a hypocrite about. Yeah. So so I don't want to, you know, it's not really about judging people, but there is like an anger sometimes in like, I wish we would talk about this a little bit more and a little bit more honestly, because I feel like you're hurt by it. You're hurt by it. I'm getting afraid, but like we're not allowed to talk about it without sounding like a, a libtard. Yeah, weird hippie or whatever. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like I'm a capitalist, man. I'm here to buy things for less than what I sell them for. <laughs> you know, that's like my job. But like there's a moment where it just seems to be a challenge. You feel like you're screaming in a, in a vacuum. Yeah. yeah, we could still be people. And, and it's like, I think in some ways that was sort of not my soapbox, but one of the beauties of the industry in the beginning was that it was counterculture. It was counter capitalist in a sense. It was just like, we're just going to make beer. We're just going to make something beautiful and we're going to sell it. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that breaks down, but somewhere between the manufacturing and the sales is where you lose it. And it, I think for me at the end, one of the things when I walked away, I was like, I knew what it was going to take to fix the business. And I didn't want to do that as a living. And so I was like, I'm out. I'd rather go do just about anything else. Yeah. I really, I actually said those Exactly. You know, and when I was describing those kind of final months of like trying to trying to work with the investors in terms of like what we need to do or you know what we might need, I think I literally said this model like could work and it needs someone to run it. But I don't want that job. <laughs> I yeah. think I've come to the like I think I've just got to this point of I'm not the I'm not the person for the job. Like that was a tough thing because it's like, well, but you made this job for yourself, you jerk, you know. Right. I felt guilty about that. It's like, well, you asked for this, man. And I was like, yeah, in some ways I did, but like there's so many things that are not in my control, right? And yeah, you can see like what it would take to do that to make the brewery successful. Right now, you know, you have to be a hyped brewery. So I never begrudge anybody for doing that. But I also just, when I ask them like, what's the margins on that product versus that product? So like the only ones you're really selling are the lowest margin ones. And what's your middle margin happening? Oh, it's getting gutted. We're gutting that part of the portfolio. Okay, cool. Like, so it's like, you know, craft beer is dead and the craft beer nerd killed it. Yeah. There's no, there's no profit in it that I can find. And so more and more, that's why, you know, obviously I'm interviewing more people who just sort of figured that out where, yeah, you can keep getting investors. You can keep kicking the can down the road, refinancing, whatever, but to what end? Like, what's the goal? Yeah. And if you go into it and say, hey, I, my goal is to have investors fund me getting to fuck around and, and be a beer guy and be, drink beer all day. Yeah. As long as everyone's above board, I guess you can do that. It's just, again, yeah. not what I want to do for a living. So. Yeah, exactly. So what do you regret the most? Like, what what do you miss? You know, you're, like I said, 10 months or so afterwards. Like, there have to be some things that you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, that was, I missed that. Yeah, I miss my, I miss my team. But, you know, I also moved away from my, from my team. So, you know, that'd be part of it. But I miss working with the people I worked with. I, over the past 10 years, arguably worked with, I think, you know, some of San Diego's most talented and creative, rad people. So I, I miss that. That's, yeah, that's the main thing. I miss some of the camaraderie of just being able to kind of go in and commiserate with, with the fellow owners and, I chat a little bit, but that, uh, again, that's probably part of the fact that I've, you know, moved myself to the other side of the world. Yeah. You completely left the continent. <laughs> yeah. Was that part of your transition plan? Yeah, it was part of it. You know, I think off camera, right. We were talking about sort of why Spain and, um, mm-hmm. it's just something that I wanted to do for a long time. And actually the day I met my wife, she even told me like, Hey, just so you know, one day I want to, you know, move to Europe. And I was like, well, I've been wanting to do that too. 
And it was something that was like a 20 year, 10 year plan. But with the timing of everything, it just felt like, um, you know, the right time. She's an Italian citizen too. So that's, that's a big part of the big part of the puzzle. So that became a part of the plan when actually, you know, I wonder sometimes like people probably just think I'm like out here in Madrid, just like, you know, I, I closed the business down. I left all my responsibilities and I'm just like, yeah, fuck you guys. I'm, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm having a great time and I love it. But when we looked at our budget, the more fiscally responsible thing was for us to move to Madrid. You know, cost of living for us is just a lot easier than it is in San Diego. And when we looked at long terms in San Diego, I'm from San Diego, so I know where I would want to live in San Diego. And it was like, that's, it was just like, that's like never going to happen, really. And again, it's like, I know what it takes to get to buying a house in San Diego, but I don't want to do it. But I can move to Spain and I can buy a house eventually and, and just be kind of the working class educator that I always wanted to be. So so that for us was a kind of a, a big part of like the life puzzle. And actually putting those two budgets of like San Diego, figuring it out versus Madrid, figuring it out. It's like, this is the more fiscally responsible thing for us to do. So if it's any consolation, you've been smiling a lot during the interview. So you seem like you might be somewhat happy, but maybe it's working, yeah. right? Yeah. Extremely happy. You know, everything's a challenge and we, um, but I have a, I have a good partner and we, we talk a lot and we, we bob and weave and we, we try to feel all the things and, and follow the things that bring us happiness. Cool. Well, when we're wrapping up, what uh, what's next for you? Where does George go from here? You know, like the past eight months, I've been been in Madrid, just spending this time getting to know the local beer scene and kind of see what it's like, survey the landscape, so to speak. You know, really with like the goal of where do I fit in? You know, what is what is the local industry need that I could provide and like enjoy and hopefully find a living doing? What that looks like, like right now, as you know. Early March of 2023 is just started picking up one shift a week, working at a local beer bar, brewery. I've been doing walking tours, like craft beer walking tours on Airbnb, trying to build that up. Uh, Later this week, I start working with a different tour company. They do um, like gastronomy and culture tours in Madrid and all over the world. I'm starting to put together and plan like beercations, so like week long destination vacations of like. Belgium, Germany, those sort of things. Uh, and trying to piece together that with like education and outreach. So like team training, stat- off-labor training, that sort of stuff with some of the local breweries. I feel like that's what I like doing. But I think it's what the local industry needs here is a little bit of emphasis on education and sensory analysis and that sort of stuff. And that's what I love doing. So like over the last eight months, I got my advanced Cicerone, got to that level, which I've been wanting to do. And then I've been just meeting people and trying to build that up. So for me right now, it looks like trying on my darndest to piece things together so I can be flexible so that I can keep piecing other things together and hopefully do some beer writing more. I need to work on my writing chops. So trying to start pushing myself to uh, you know, write blogs and do that sort of stuff, maybe piece together a, an income that way as well. But quick answer is it's figuring it out. That's like the current agenda is try on a lot of lot of shoes and see see the ones that fit. Honest question. Are you going to open a brewery in Spain? No, hell no. <laughs> well, okay, I can't say hell no because one of the things that we wanted to do in like 10, 20 years would be like own a bed and breakfast somewhere in, in Spain. Something really simple. You know, it's like we live there. It you know, it, it pays our mortgage and, and we have flexibility to do these other things, you know, like the things I've described. Right. And I've always had this romantic notion of like bed and breakfast with four rooms. There's a pizza oven and a small brewery. 
And on like Thursdays and Fridays, we make pizzas and yeah, you can buy a beer. Uh, so back to this like very small, rustic, romantic, artisanal thing. So I can't say no, I will never own a brewery again, but it would have to look something like that. Working in a brewery, I love it. I would be happy to do more of that. Working behind a bar, I don't love it. I'm ha- happy to pull my weight as far as that's concerned to be a part of the team. Uh, but yeah, owning another brewery. All right, fair enough. Well, obviously these uh, stories are you know, emotional and there's a lot going on there, but I think what you added to the show is something unique and interesting and that there's a lot that we can learn from it. So I I appreciate you taking the time, especially from halfway across the world. I wish you all the best going forward. Anything we can do to help, let us know. Thanks. I appreciate it. And um, good luck to everyone out there who's thinking about doing it. And I, yeah, I would say if you need to reach out, people can definitely reach out to me and you can pass along my email or george at georgesgeorge.com. Okay. Lots of Georges. And I'll link it but, in the show uh, notes too. So. Yeah. I still feel those sort of emails from people and I'm happy to happy to help people and put in my two cents when they when they ask for it. That's awesome. So and obviously that's what we do. So I appreciate you that today and uh, best of luck and everything you're going forward. Thanks. Likewise. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.